All right, everybody. Uh, happy Friday, happy Friday. Uh, looks like the markets are rebounding this week. Looks like we went from imminent recession to not in two days. So um, I think the point is best made that the stock market does not predict anything in the short term. And anyone who tells you based on two or three days or even a week's stock activity, the market is trying to tell you something or predict something, please do not listen to them because uh, they are interpreting what they think it means, not what it actually means. So uh, a couple of housekeeping items. Uh, first, I got a request last week to um, put, the, um, uh, put the questions into a post when I post the blog past. Blog, I'm sorry, blog past, <laughs> podcast, uh, because I was reading them very fast, so sometimes people couldn't hear what the actual questions were. So I think that's a great idea. So I have all the questions written down, and what I will do is then I will put them into a post and say the pod, latest podcast is up on Podbean, and go ahead over and listen to it, and these are the questions that I'm answering. So I think that was a uh, absolutely fantastic request, and I happily will comply with that. So it's and actually the reality is it uh, makes it a lot easier for me because uh, you know if I was having a problem with you know, deleting an email or swiping it by accident and trying to go find the middle of the podcast and so this is I forget who made the request but uh, whoever did it thank you very much and I will absolutely do that from now on. And if you haven't downloaded the app download the Podbean app to your phone, Android, iPhone. Uh, they have apps for both of them. It'll give you a notification when there's a new podcast. You can listen to it right there. So you don't have to remember the web address or type it into a browser or anything like that. And I, you know, it's iPad friendly, iPhone friendly, Android, whatever the other tablets are out there. So uh, just if, you, if you're into it and you like them, it just makes your life uh, a lot easier. So let's get uh, right to the questions. Uh, you have bought Fannie Mae Common, uh, Common and Preferred but not the Fannie Mac, Freddie, Freddie Mac, common and preferred. Are you concerned about it or are they just really the same? Um, no, I'm not, I don't have a preference one over the other. I just think Fannie is the much bigger of the two and that uh, I think that gives a impetus to the government to take care of that one first um, rather than deal with the smaller one, leave the huge massive entity hanging out there. So that's the only reason why. Um, I. I guess if I really think about it, whatever they do to Fannie, they're probably going to do to Freddie. So the stocks will probably trade similar or the same. Uh, I just preferred Freddie because it's just the bigger one. So, um, What are your thoughts on how detailed Treasury HUD, uh, it's, FHA, not, it's FHFA, not HUD, um, plans will be? FHFA. Um, specific number on how much capital, if and when. If and what preferred shares will be converted at, what happens to the common timetables, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that I think that it has to be somewhat detailed, right? Because the whole point of bringing this plan out and the whole point of presenting this plan to the public, to the government, to lawmakers, to Wall Street, to private investors, to um, you know, who knows? There uh, might be sovereign wealth funds that are in, interested in getting in on this, right? Uh, the whole point of doing that is to raise money. So a very undetailed, very general plan 
that doesn't give people much of anything to really sink their teeth into isn't really going to accomplish that. And if they're in the, the money raising process, they're going to have to, and there are laws, right? You just can't put out a general document and go behind and talk to private investors and other people and give them more detail. You have to, if this is your goal is to do a public raise, you have to give everyone the opportunity to view the same information. So it has to be a somewhat detailed plan. Now, obviously it's going to be a, a first draft or first draft, sir. And obviously there might be two scenarios they're considering and they're putting them out there to see what everyone's reaction is. Um, so, you know, you may not get exact conversion prices and dates and things like that, but um, I do believe you'll get a fair amount of detail that will enable people to come up with some sort of estimation on value of preferred shares, common shares, what they may or may not convert at, what price they may convert at. And again, all this is, this lot depends on demand. How much they're going to convert? Are they going to spend the whole thing out at first or spend it out in, in chunks? Is the government going to convert its warrants right away? Are they going to wait? Are they going to forego some of the warrants to help capitalize that? I mean, there's, there's a million different scenarios you can come up with. And a lot of those details are going to have to be in there so people can make it an, uh, a good, rational investment decision. So... After, you know, after that, I don't know. I don't, you know, again, I don't know when or whatever. I know Calabria has said he wants it something in January. Um, I know that, um, you know, a couple analyst firms came out today and said it'll be years. You know, I don't, I don't, again, it's one person's opinion who hasn't seen the plan. So I, you know, things like that, I have a hard time really, um, putting a lot of weight into because they're not in the discussions. They're not between Treasury and FHFA. They don't really know what's being discussed. They may be hearing things or assume they're hearing things, but it doesn't mean what they're hearing is accurate. So given all that, I kind of discount statements like that from people. And I tend to follow what Calabria is saying, because if we're being honest, he's pretty much done what he said he's going to do, right? I mean, he was confirmed. He said it was a top priority. to do it right away. He hit the office. He got confirmed. He hit the ground with his feet running. He's allegedly there's plans being you know floated back and forth and talked about in between the two agencies. And he said in June I'm going to have something out. And I've heard nothing to counter that he's going to have something out in June. So uh, you know I would tend to uh, follow his statements more than some random analysts at a at a firm. So um, your thoughts on holding Freddie Freddie preferred versus Fannie Mae. Uh, I'm assuming you're meaning Fannie, Freddie preferred versus Fannie, pl- sorry, Fannie preferred versus Fannie, pre- Freddie preferred versus Fannie preferred. Wow, that's a tongue twister. Um, again, I think they're going to be treated the same. So, you know, I, I think if you can get, um, you know, I, I like those Freddie 50s because we got a 10% discount to where we were before with the, the, uh, the S's, the 25 pars. So I got 10% more shares. I already spent 10% left to get the same exposure. So now you made 10% in a day. And that's okay because I think they're both going to go to par anyway. So I'll get 10% more shares. And 10% more shares on the upside, I like that I like that chance. So um, it might be worth talking about the risks in CHK, Chesapeake Energy. It's a chance of some Breitburn-like event happening. Now, Breitburn was a very different scenario than Chesapeake. Uh, you know, v- Breitburn was... Uh, you know, one of those uh, companies that depended on high oil prices, uh, heavily, heavily indebted, uh, needed their lending line to survive, 
And we don't have that with Chesapeake. Chesapeake's been diversified. They're not wholly dependent on the price of oil and not wholly dependent on the price of gas. They have both. Uh, now, granted, both tend to rise and fall in somewhat of unison, but uh, a, a large downdraft in the price of either one isn't going to hurt them. Uh, they are almost cash flow positive, and Breitbart was never truly actually really cash flow positive. And I think they're going to be a profitable company next year. So, no, I don't think Chesapeake's in danger of that. I think, you know, I've said this before, and I, I still think it's true. Chesapeake still still suffering from the hangover of the McClendon years when they ran around buying any land anywhere, ran up their debt, drill, 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 buy more land, get more debt, drill, 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 drill. It's not the same company anymore. That's not what this company does. And, and I'm under the opinion that if, if they had changed the name of Chesapeake five years ago to something else, it, it'd be trading markedly higher right now. But you'd be amazed how many people I talk to who I say, check Chesapeake in, and say, oh, yeah, they're tied to gas. And they're not, they're not so much tied to gas anymore, right? They're, they're ramping up to that 20, 30% oil exposure, which doesn't make them just a gas company anymore. And pe- most people don't even know they have an oil operations. So eventually people are going to figure it out, you know, and I still think once the company achieves cash flow positive levels, and, you know, that should happen in Q4, Q1 next year, um, then it's a markedly different story overnight, right? Because then they're able to service their debt, run their operations, not need debt, right? And once that happens also, whatever debt they have, they can refinance at more better, ter- more better terms because they'll be cash flow positive. They'll, they'll be functioning like a really healthy company. And I think then the stock price will reflect that. You know, Lawler's never not lived up to expectations at this point. He's never set a goal and come woefully short and made excuses. He's achieved what he said he's going to achieve. And he's very um, conservative in his outlooks, and I think that, you know, you don't get a lot of bump when he gives predictions, but they're always meeting or beating him. So, you know, that's all you can ask for out of a CEO. And, you know, I think he's doing a great job. I think things are going to be just fine. Um, and I think the stock price is going to be much higher uh, over time. So I'm, I'm very happy adding at these levels. I added, like I said last week, I added more. Um, if you, I think if you can get the stock around two bucks a share, um, I think in a couple of years you'll be You'll be very, very happy. So, and even the oil, what, I think they're at 70, 76% hedge for this year. So even, you know, the, the oil price is falling 20% in a month, which is why the stock went down. There's no other reason it went down. Um, you know, isn't going to have this massive negative effect on the company because uh, they're hedged for it anyway. So, um, okay. Someone read the trust docs I posted on TPL. So Eric Oliver owns over 500,000 par value and can tell, I could call shareholder meetings to replace trustees for actions and change to a corporation. He means a C-Corp. Do you think he will do this soon? 1.4 million shares times $20 equals 28 million par value. So, I mean, here's the thing. Uh, first of all, he's not even in office yet, right? It's in court, of course. And, you know, both sides have filed lawsuits. Those are going to have to be heard or settled or whatever before anything happens. So right now the company is still operating with two shareholders and I mean two shareholders, two trustees. And I think I think that's a decent reason for the price decline. Yes, oil's gone down, but you know, rig counts in the Permian aren't collapsing. So they're still gonna be bringing in lots of money. Um, you know, maybe now they can send it on spend it on buybacks instead of Google ads and mailings to trash a guy running for trustee, but that's just my opinion. Um, so 
we, we just need to wait, you know. I think, should the courts rule in our favor? Should he be placed in there? If we're to believe what he says, and we're to believe he's going to act in ways that we can kind of figure out he has based on other places he's been and past statements and what people have said about him, that he probably will try and work these two. Because, you know, bringing another shareholder meeting and trying to remove a direct, it's going to, that's going to be a lot more cost. It's a lot more corporate cost. Millions and millions of dollars of cost to do it. So your lawyer's got to get paid, got to run in. This guy's going to sue them for trying to be removed for cost. I mean, just it's going to be expensive mess. So I think we can assume his first course of action will be to try to work with these people, to try and make change and affect change positively. There's no reason as a trustee, if he wants to become a C-Corp and he can't, because they won't let him, he can say that. Or he disagrees with this deal or wants to do that deal and they don't want to because they're just saying no to everything he says or doing the exact opposite in some sort of childish fit. Um, you know, so we'll see. And also, I mean, don't forget, you know, his, his group has filed a lawsuit against them saying that they could be liable for their behavior. And this may not be an issue. You know, maybe one of the trustees decides to step down rather than face the heat or go to court or do whatever. You know, they say, I don't, I don't need this. This you know, three or four hundred thousand dollar year gig isn't worth this. What could happen? I'm gone. I'll step down. And in which case, we have another vote. And based on the first vote, one has to think the Oliver Group's going to get someone they want on there. And then this is all a done deal. So um, the trust docs refer to shareholders which own shares 15 days before the meeting should vote. This will make changes in who votes in any future shareholder meeting. This could mean that the changes to date of meeting should change. Who votes as holders? What do you think? Um, I don't know about that because that seems like a legal question that I'm not ready to answer. Um, I don't know if moving the date of the meeting also moves moves the date of. I, I think the way they normally go is that you know sh- you know shareholders of X date or shareholders of this date. The meetings move. They still think it's the original shareholders of the original date. Um, otherwise voting could be a mess, right? You're, you're sending out proxy cards and people have proxy cards and they mail them in and then you send out new white proxy cards and they mail them in and if shares have changed hands, I think it just could end up leading to a disaster. So I think it's only shareholders of X date for the meeting. I'm not 100% sure that you what I guess the only way to figure that out is to read the actual proxy, right? Because if the actual proxy changes the date of which shareholders can vote, then there's your answer for you. Um, so, so, oh, so I did a post uh, last week about Dodd-Frank and housing, and housing is percentage of GDP, and I, David said in the post, not me, I'm sorry, I posted it, um, and that uh, were it not for Dodd-Frank, housing would be notably higher than what it is now. Right now it's about half of GDP, half of its normal percentage of GDP, which is a massive drain on the economy, both in jobs and spending and, and everything. Every Housing is a massive sector. And I said that the main reason was because of regulation, Dodd-Frank, restricted lending, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so um, a comment in the blog said that the impact of SALT limitations on the two blue estates will affected. Um, and my reply was that, well, the... Uh, those limitations she's talking about were part of the 2018 Tax Act, and housing's been a, about half of what its normal historical percentage GDP is since 2010, 2011. So no, 
that's had no effect on that at all. Uh, increasing property taxes on a 2% annual rate. They become a second mortgage and larger than the prime mortgage. Again, property taxes increasing in some areas, not, not increasing in all areas, some areas are falling, um, has always been a part of the housing market. And a 2% increase in your property taxes you know, shouldn't wipe out hundreds of billions of dollars worth of GDP um, simply because your property tax goes 2%. You know, if that happens, typically what happens then, right, is people, then you get, if that's the case, people start selling the homes because they can't afford the property taxes, you should see more homes on the market. But that's not happening. So clearly people are absorbing this property tax. Um, impact of decreasing ready land available for development in suitable proximity to population centers. Uh, there are a few, but a few HACs out there. And that, that's actually very true. There has been a massive decrease in ready available land for development in suitable proximity to population centers. The reason is A, D, and C, which is uh, development and construction acquisition lending, collapsed after Dodd-Frank. That's the reason. You go back to when Dodd-Frank passed, you look at A, D, and C lending, it collapsed. So you're not getting spec developments like you've always had in the history. People are building houses. They're building smaller areas, and they're building houses. You buy the house, they go build it. You know, they may have one or two spec homes. They used to build 30, 40 spec homes and developments, and people just went in there and buy them, and they're ready to go. And that kept prices low because it kept inventory around six months. That's considered equilibrium. We haven't had six months inventory in seven, eight, nine, ten years. So, you know, you get some areas with two or three percent um, uh, housing inventory. There's, there's nothing to buy. And what buy goes immediately and the prices keep going up. So prices are affordable. They're not building starter homes. And you drive around some of the areas where you live. And I don't know where you live, but if you live in older areas, some in the northeast and stuff like that, you see those little cape houses, little small three, four bedroom homes. You know, 2,000 square feet, 1,500, 2,000 square feet homes. Those were your starter homes when we were kids, if you're my age. Um, not anymore. They're not getting built anymore. The only thing you get built anymore, if you do look at something like that, is they're like townhouses or luxury apartments. You know, they're not building starter homes. The reason they're not building them is because lending isn't going to your first-time home buyer. And that's because of Dodd-Frank and the mortgage buyback rules. And the first-time lenders are the most risky. They don't have a housing history. So banks are reluctant to lend because they got to buy the loans back and all the stuff that goes with it. So relaxing some Dodd-Frank regulations will help money flow into housing. And that would be a big, big boost to the U.S. economy. And honestly, housing prices are too high. You know, you shouldn't have to save until you're 35, 40 years old to buy your first home. It just shouldn't be the way. It's never been that way, but that's just the way it is now. And that's regulations done that. It's not the market. It's regulations. Regulation, the market's responding to regulations. Um, number six, do you always reinvest your dividends in your investments or do you take cash dividends to build up your cash position? Um, it depends. So it, and the reason it depends, if the stock is absurdly cheap, then I have no problem reinvesting the dividends and having it buy me more stock every time the dividends come out, right? It's easy. It's cheap. There's, you know, there's no commissions involved. You automatically get it. You don't have to think about it. Da, da, da. If the company's not absurdly cheap and I'm invested in a lot of stuff and I think it might have opportunities, then I'll just take the dividends and I'll let my cash balance build up and I'll use that for other things. So it's really, there's no, I don't have a hard press rule. There's no definitive answer of what I do every single time I want to do this. 
I just sort of, it's on a case-by-case basis. So, you know, if, it, if you're buying something, you know, for 10 bucks, I'm just throwing numbers out that you think's worth $30 a share and they're paying dividends, then reinvest the dividends. You know, if you think it's worth 30, it's at 22, 23, and you have other chances that I want to do, then take them with you. It's completely up to you, but, you know, it's a great free way to buy more stock. Um, do you do anything different when you hold preferred shares in a company rather than a common stock? Preferreds are usually traded over the counter. Are there any restrictions before you can buy preferred shares? If, if your preferreds wind up converting to common, like the scenarios you have discussed in the GSEs, do you need to do anything or does the broker account handle all of that? So, number one, I don't do anything different when I'm holding preferred shares rather than common stock because at the end of the day, whatever I'm holding, I'm holding because I perceive the eventual value of that is much higher than the current value. Right, and you're going to get paid on the preferreds usually much higher interest rate than you will on a common to hold, sit there, and wait. Um, so there's nothing actually you have to do differently. Right, they both sit in your brokerage account the same way. Um, if they wind up converting to common, do you need to do anything? Okay, so if you have a convertible preferred that converts on a certain date at a certain um, price at the company's discretion. There's nothing to do. They just convert it. If you have the option to convert it, then obviously you'll have to tell your broker or you'll get instructions from the company. You'll get something that you can convert it when you want. And usually it has to trade over a certain share price for a certain number of days, and then you can ask for a conversion into common or whatever it might be. So there's two different scenarios there. If, <coughs> sorry, and I have no idea what this um, um, GSE conversion is going to look like, but um, you know, one has to think that it will be negotiated between the government and the largest holders who are also the ones suing it. And there'll be some sort of deal worked out to both drop litigation and convert at whatever. And, um, I'm sure everyone will do the same thing. They're going to have to treat all the preferred, preferred the same. They can't say the M's get this, the L's get this, the S's get that. They got to treat them all the same because they'll just spawn more lawsuits if they don't. So, um, as far as the GSE goes, that's what's going to happen. And um, are there any restrictions for you can buy preferred shares? No, you don't. You don't have. There's no restriction unless your broker has some restriction, which I have never heard of. Um, it's usually usually have to use, use the OTC. You have to use a limit order, and which is fine because some of them have pretty wide spreads anyway. So put your limit order in, wait for it to get filled. Um, and in the GSC scenario, if if it's a, if it's a mandatory conversion. Um, on the conversion date, you'll see, you know, you'll see um, your preferreds eliminated in the common there. Sometimes they'll trade on it you know, as when issued. So they'll have like the, the new common shares will trade on a when issued thing, another symbol, and they just all automatically get merged into one um, on the date that they convert. Um, TPL has bounced around in the low 700s lately. You've made the convincing long-term value argument. What do you see the next catalyst will be to resonate with the rest of the market and bring the stock price up? Um, obviously, it's going to be Oliver, right? Whatever's going to happen with Oliver. I think if he gets in there, I think the stock really jumps and goes back to where it was a month ago. Um, I think if he doesn't, then it's just going to have to wait on results and see what the current trustees do. Um, now, remember, even if he loses, here's the thing. Even if he loses in court right now, and the court comes back and says that 
that wasn't a valid shareholder meeting, the votes don't count. Well, he's still not out. They still have to schedule a new meeting and vote again. He's got the votes. I mean, I don't, I just can't see a scenario where that large of, of a percentage of the votes change. It just doesn't make any sense. So, you know, I think he's in no matter what. I think the only question is, does the court rule that was a valid meeting let him in? Do the trustees drop the lawsuit because they don't be held personally liable for what they've done? Or do they win and have another vote in July or August and he wins then? So and I think that's a done deal. It's just a question of timing, but obviously the timing on that is a catalyst. Um, do you think it will be getting legal clarity? Yeah, well, I'm sorry, I didn't read the whole question. Uh, yes, I think that that's the first one is the Oliver situation, um, whether it's to the courts or they negotiate something or whatever. I think the second scenario also is the pipelines, sorry, the pipelines that are rushing into the Permian to alleviate the bottlenecks. Um, there's not enough pipeline space, especially natural gas. They're estimating the natural gas in the Permian is going to double in the next five years or so. Um, you know, Williams has a massive pipeline going out there. Kinder Morgan has two huge pipelines going out there. One should be done before the end of this year, I think in the mid late fall, probably October, November. Um, and I think once those pipelines are in and they're able to more economically ship out gas and ship out oil, uh, I think you see a, another, another surge. I think, you know, the Permian has been kind of flat as far as drilling activity because they can't get the stuff out. And, you know, taking it out on truck to train is, is expensive and cost prohibitive. And, and it really hits the value of a barrel of oil. And right now they're just flaring the gas because there's no gas pipeline. There's not no. There's not enough gas pipelines. Um, they can't liquefy it out there, so they just gotta flare it and burn it off. There's literally just burning off gas into the air. So um, once those pipelines come in and they can ship that gas out and make a little money on it instead of losing money on it, which is what they're doing now, I think then you see the next surge in drag activity, drag rig activity in the region. And that should bump the price up. And obviously the price of oil, right? It does, TPL trades heavily with the price of oil. And if oil shoots back up into the 60s, 70s, and hits 80s, then the price is going to weigh up because we're getting royalties, right? We're getting royalties on, on what's sold. So the, the more value of what comes out of the ground, either by volume or price, then the better for TPL. So, and the more pipelines, because remember, anything that crosses TPL's land they're getting a little toll, little toll for that, right? So any of those situations are going to be useful for it. Uh, <laughs> final question: Bruins on six or seven? Do we see Charles? Well, that got answered last night. Uh, Charles back on the ice, and I said after Game Four um, in St. Louis that I thought the Bruins were in deep trouble. Uh, losing Greslick uh, was a big blow. He's one of their better defensemen. Chara, um, while yes, he played, was nowhere near the Chara uh, of this year. And the Chara of this year is nowhere near the Chara of the last four or five years. Uh, granted, he's uh, still a top defenseman, but, um, you know, him hurt, Grizzlick out. I just don't think they have it. And honestly, St. Louis is just skating harder. Um, St. Louis is playing harder. Um they're hitting more. They're all over the ice. And honestly, the goaltender, I mean, that the 
St. Louis had the one game, it was a 7-1. That guy just got shelled, shelled that game. And, you know, honestly, some of those were, a couple of those were not good goals to give up, but some of those were him just being left out to dry. Um, he's played as well as Rask, I think. And I think the Blues forwards have outplayed the Bruins forward on just about every level. Um, they're forechecking harder. They're skating faster. Five on five, they've dominated the Bruins. If it wasn't for power for special teams, uh, the Bruins would not have uh, really accomplished much of anything. Um, if I think five on five, they have one or two goals the whole series. So if you can't win five on five, where you know ninety percent of the game is played, I don't think you have a chance. So I think um, I, 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 you know, I have a feeling that um, they'll go back to St. Louis and probably win the cup there. And, and honestly, good for St. Louis. They haven't had it. Um, it's been a hell of a long time since so they've even been playing for it. And you know what? They're, they're a fun team to watch. They're a nice team to watch. There's no guys on that team. You know, there's, no, uh, there's no Matt Cooks or Sean Avery's or um, oh, what the hell's that guy from Toronto that's always getting suspended. There's nothing like that. It's been a, it's been a vicious series, hard hit, but it hasn't been a cheap series. There hasn't been cheap hits. There hasn't been any garbage. It's just been hard, 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 hard hockey. It's been an amazing series to watch. So I think that's how... That ends up, unfortunately, for Bruins fans, but, you know, next year's another year, so. So I think that's all the questions I have. Um, didn't get a ton this week. Maybe it's a big vacation week out there. Um, I am just going to do a quick look through here to see if anyone sent over any while I was talking. And it appears not. All right, so that's where we stand. That's that's the podcast for this week. Um, remember to send over whatever questions you have for next week to subs at valueplays.com. Please put podcast in the um, subject so it doesn't get doesn't get mixed in with other emails. And oh oh yeah, one more thing. A bunch of you have signed up for that affiliate program. Uh, remember, it pays you twenty percent or whatever someone pays for a subscription as long as they're subscribed. So they pay, you know. 49 59 whatever it is a month for the next four years you get 20 percent of that every month with them and there's no limit to how much you can earn so it's not too hard to have value plays actually pay you to be a member and and hopefully also profit off the stock pitch so if you need any help with it send me an email i'll get you signed up for it a bunch of people already have i've already gotten some stuff off it so thank you very much for that and uh, you can look for your payouts in the coming month so have a great and safe weekend, everyone, and I'll be back next week.